today's episode, Dave interviews Cindy Caponera. Cindy is a comedy writer, author, and performer. She wrote on, among other shows, Saturday Night Live, Showtime's Shameless, and Nurse Jackie. Her solo shows have played in Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles, and at the HBO Comedy Festival in Aspen. Cindy is a Second City alum and author whose book, Triggered Her Bully, is a bestseller on Amazon and will soon be out in paperback. I'm Ian Foley, and this is ADD Comedy. So you left, you left Second City and you went to New York. Why did you go to New York? I went to New York in 93 mm-hmm. because I was done at main stage. You hadn't had it. You'd had it. And I didn't know what else to do. So my friend, Christine Eversole, called, called me and asked me if I wanted to come. How do you know her? Here's what happened. In 1946, when I was learning how to improvise, they had just gotten <laughs> streetlights up on Wrightwood Avenue. No, I was at the Players Workshop, and I and one of the guys in my class was really good friends with Tony Ebersole, Christine's brother. Right. And he and I started dating. He was ten years older than me, mm-hmm. and he sort of, I sort Did of. Did you date older people? I know I didn't, but what he was for me was my transition boyfriend from the South Side to the North Side. Oh, I see. Because you wanted to get rid of like what was what was the difference between? Well, those the two? difference was just the life I had on the South Side and what was going to become my life as an artist and a person on the North so Side. So you didn't feel that you could do every once in a while I'll check to see how things are going. You didn't feel that you could do what you wanted to do on the South Side. There was nowhere to do it. Right. You could do some stuff, but there was nowhere to do Second City. I mean. I was like Rose in that way that Second City came to my college. Right. I saw them do Dr. Dictionary or whatever that one is. <laughs> Look up what you call. Right, right. Look up balls. Look yes, up, exactly. Uh, yeah, Dr. And Dictionary. And then when they said doctor, when the voiceover came on, I thought I lost my shite. I'm like, what? They're doctors? Like it was so right, retarded. Right, two guys sitting on the chair and going, look up, look up, uh, uh, look up, scrotum, scrotum, scrotum. Uh, look up, oh, and it's like uh, Dr. Fountain, got to exactly. But he's just like, really? Yeah, okay. I saw that blackout and I was like, I have to do this. <laughs> so that just goes to show you where I was. But um, so I was one of those people. I don't know how I got on this track. Oh, so anyhow, I was taking classes at Players Workshop. This is before there was a training center. Mm-hmm. And well, um, you, you, I'm sorry, but it's like I didn't realize how young you were when you started. Fourteen. You were really, no, really I was young. super young. You yeah. were super young. Yeah. Because you, you were there before the, because I think that Bonnie Hunt was in the was in was one of the first people in the training center. I yeah. Think Joe Bill. Uh, Pasquazi was there. Was yeah. there. Like these are the people that were at the beginning of this. And wasn't it just Donnie DiPolo teaching? At the training center? I don't know. Oh, because you weren't there. I wasn't there. Donnie was my first touring company director. Right. Um, uh, who, is it, who, is in the, who is in Players Workshop in, with you? In my Players Workshop, I don't think you know any of them, really. Uh, one of them, I found out, is now sort of a food guy on local NBC in Chicago? In Chicago. He was the one that, that, we had a lot of guys in my classroom advertising. Right. And um, anyhow, he was the guy that always made the flyers. He right. was in my first group <laughs> called Identity Crisis. And we won the first cross currents competition. This was before there was an IO. Right. It was just mostly like theater games, kind right. of. But um, So was that with David Shepard? It was with Sharna pre-Dell. Got it. But it was funny because one of the guys in my company, Identity Crisis, whose name was Scott King, became the mayor of Gary, Indiana. So when I was at SNL, I, call, I saw that he was the mayor and I called him. I'm like, and his secretary answered. I'm like, yes, this is Cindy Caponera from Identity Crisis. And he got on the phone. He's like, don't ever. He basically said, I can never call him again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you're the mayor of Gary, Indiana. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, uh, so Eversol. So you. Oh, so anyhow, I'm, I can't even remember his friend's name. I start dating Tony, Tony. and through him, I meet Christine. Who, now, now explain who Christine is. Christine Eversol is, as you know, a two-time Tony award-winning actress. She's been in a gazillion movies. She's right. currently on Sullivan and Sons. Um, she's always worked right. since I've known her. And a Chicago lady. She's from Wilmette or she's, Winnetka. Right, but she's a Chicago area actress. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Uh-huh. And just right. one of the most gorgeous singers you'll ever hear. And she won her Tonys for 42nd Street and the Grey Gardens. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, this is a long time Did ago. Did you see her on Broadway? Have you ever seen her on yes. Broadway? Yes. 
I saw her in Grey Gardens and I saw her, oh, I don't know if I saw her in 42nd Street, but when she called for me to be her nanny of a son she had just adopted, uh-huh. she was working out Paper Moon at the paper mill in New Jersey uh-huh. and was going to open it on Broadway in a few months. So you were in New York. This is pre you writing on SNL. Yes. This is, but so you, you went to SNL after you left Second City when you got, when you did get to the main stage. No, I went to New York without knowing what was going to happen. Uh-huh. And I wound up being on Exit 57 with Paul and Amy and those guys. And from that, a guy that I went to acting school in New York with in years ago became producer of SNL. And that's how I got hired. You so did I one just review went to on- New York. Who was in your main stage company? It was I. I took over for Holly. Right. Uh, in the Pasquese, whatever that machination, uh, Odenkirk, Farley, Meadows, they, Meadows. They were all in there originally. And Jill. Right. Jill Talley. Yes. And then those guys all left. I think Rabano and Carell came up, and Michael McCarthy. Right. And that was my main stage company. Isn't it weird to look back on that? Because I look back and then I go, oh, look at those guys. Oh, how did they get up there? And look, and where did she come from? And all that. And well, all that were, little petty bullshit well, that The politics on. is what killed me. I couldn't. And I only went back there because a year before I had a meeting with Joyce and I was- Joyce Sloan. Joyce Sloan. And I was going to do my one woman show at the ETC space. What was the name of one woman show? Against the Grain. It was about the fireman strike. Of 1981, Mm -hmm. because my father was a retired fire chief. Mm -hmm. And after I did that show, she asked me if I wanted to replace Holly. So I went in and replaced Holly. Holly left on really short notice. Holly went to L.A. Yeah, with Bonnie, right? Yeah, so there's that phrase that uh, Holly went to Bonniewood. Have you ever heard that phrase? No, that's hilarious. Isn't that an awesome phrase? Holly went to Bonniewood. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) So anyhow, I only did a year on main stage. So I only really did one um, review. Mm-hmm. That, uh, well, you, but you've, you've been around. I'm cutting you off like a motherfucker. Uh, you are uh, not because for any reason other than I'm excited. So you, you've always been a writer. No. I always wrote my own stuff. Yes. Yes. I always wrote my own stuff as an actor because I didn't like auditioning. Right. So that's why even when I was doing sketch shows, I was, I think, at an early stage, there was a show we were doing called On the Ledge or Off the Ledge. It was me and Ron West and Kevin, um, Kevin who drives the pedicabs. Kevin Burroughs. Kevin, Kevin Burroughs, Catherine Michon, uh-huh. and uh, another really funny friend of Ron's that I can't remember right now. And even then, I was doing like little monologues. Mm-hmm. And then I watched... What I did was I wound up watching, um, what was that Arthur Miller play? It was on PBS. With, All My Sons with yes, Aiden Quinn. Yes, I watched it like... That is one of the greatest things I've ever seen on television. 750 it, times. Oh my God. Aiden Quinn at the end of that. Oh my God. What's his name? What's his name? The, James Whitmore. James Whitmore. And the Polish guy whose name you can never pronounce. Right. He's into everything now. Yes. And, De, and, Man, and De, um, Joan Allen. Yes. Oh my God. That was one of the best things I've ever seen. All My Sons, it was PBS and Aiden Quinn. You look at Aiden Quinn, you go, you are one handsome oh my God. motherfucker. Gay man. It's gay, right? No. He's Aiden Quinn, no. Okay. Why do I think he's gay? No. Right. Because I know a couple people who've had Aiden who've Quinn. Who've been Quinned? Who've been Quinned. <laughs> but I had a videotape of that. Uh-huh. And I must have watched it 700 times. And then I wound up, at the same time, I was trying to do this character, this fireman character. Don't ask me why. I was living in an attic apartment. I did my dishes in the tub. Who knew why? Right. Um, In Chicago. Yes. I got it from Jane Boyd. She left. Mm -hmm. She went to L.A. Right. And I took it from her. It was like $190 a month. Mm -hmm. Look at at all the fucking people we know. I know. It's crazy. You know what I mean? And you talk about Jane. You talk about uh, Catherine Michon, you know, who I haven't thought about in so long. And most people are listening to this. I don't know who those people are. The point is so many creative people. You don't have to know who they are. You have to know. (laughs) You don't have to know who they are. You have to know that we have surrounded ourselves or been surrounded by some pretty awesome human beings. Always. Yeah, the community is so far-reaching mm-hmm. and so uh, generational now and so just a beautiful, beautiful community. And I think that so many people have that community, and, and I think a lot of people need to stop and go, oh, 
I am not alone wherever it is that I am. I've got this community. Right. You needed a place to stay. So Jane and you needed a place, you needed a job. So Miss um, Ebersol got you a, a job. Ten years after the fact, when I was no, and what happened was Chris wound up dating my brother for a while. Mm -hmm. My brother seems to stay really good friends with like people that I've dated. Right. So at any rate, I go to, it's 93. I leave Chicago, like in a big way. I had already gone to New York two other times. Once before I got hired by Second City, mm -hmm. I moved there and I was going to, I actually started doing stand up like twice. I did stand up twice. No. I don't know what I was doing there. And um, that's when I went to the American Academy. Anyhow, I wound up moving there. I get a call saying, Joyce, they're hiring at Second City. They want you to come back and audition. So that happened. So then in 88, I go back to New York again to film school for a summer. And then 93, and I always felt this pull, like I should go there, I need to go there. And to I, New York. Yes. Uh -huh. And I always thought, I always saw myself as like going to Yale and going to act, like getting my MFA in acting. Right. In fact, when I got to New York, I was already not a young person. And I went to Juilliard and they're like, you can't come here, you're too old. <laughs> like, what? I'm only 67. So I didn't know what I was going to do there. And then I wound up doing Exit 57 for two seasons and working like part-time. What was it like writing on that show? That was really fun. Uh-huh. So it was, uh, it was Colbert, Paul Dinello, Amy Sedaris, Greg Holliman. He wasn't a writer, though. No, he wasn't on. He was on Strangers with Candy. That's right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So Mitch, Mitch and Jody Lennon. And Jody Lennon. They were the writers as they well. They were the cast, and I was a writer kind of performer. Right. And look at that. Oh, my God. Look at that. That's cuckoo town. That was sketch. That was sketch. Uh -huh. And it all took place. And, you know, they have that. Um, Amy and Paul and Stephen always had that thing about wanting to do something in the same town, you right. know. So that was fun. That was two seasons. It was a little, at the time, they, it was funny because I met Stephen and Paul when I was on main stage and they would come up and understudy all right. the time. Right, So that's kind of, I met all those people at my second go at Second City mm -hmm. after I quit and came back. Right. My God. It's, and, and, and also that triumvirate, Amy Sedaris, Paul Dinello, Stephen Colbert. And that, that triumvirate, that was a tough nut to crack into. And whenever you did a scene on main stage with one of those guys, um, you always kind of felt the others like going, what, where's mine? How come I? What? And not in a bad way. Right. You're it was going, just very, they were very insular. Very, very insular. And I remember the greatest compliment that Danello ever gave me. Colbert and I did a scene called uh, CIA. And he said, I really wish I was in that scene with you guys. So it's like, that's great. That's great. <laughs> Amy, Paul, and Steve did a scene called Black Mollies. Do you remember that Is at that all? the one where they're asking the son or the kid who they like yeah, the best? Yeah, they're rowing in a boat, and it's like, who do you like best? If mom dropped off, the, who would you? if we both fell overboard, who would you rescue? And uh, Colbert was smoking a pipe, and yeah. who would you rescue? And, like, <laughs> and Amy was like, who would rescue, son? Who would rescue? And that, that scene is one of the most beautiful scenes. Those guys. I know. They had something really special. Really special. And it wasn't just about comedy. It was about real characters. But it was also about comedy. Yes, but it, it was, was always about, yeah. Well, you know, she's such a character uh, embodier, you know, such an aficionado in terms of she can only, she only operates from that place. Right. She has a lot of ideas and a lot of ruminations about things that she would like to see and a lot of moments that she would like to play, but it all has to go, get filtered through this thing. Right. So I think that's what makes her a better vehicle in terms of storytelling as a performer than, than a writer. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. She would come in with ideas. She came in, uh, and I think I mentioned it on the podcast before, she came in one day during a rehearsal, because I think I did three or four shows with her, with Amy. And she came in with, somehow she went to a taxidermist and got deer claws and was able and manufacture them or work them into so that they would pince, pinch. And she wanted to play a character, and her, and and that was that was pretty much the nut right. of it all, right there. And that's Always. what you got. Wheelchairs, squirrels, <laughs> you know. You're just like okay, right? Like the and her craft books are insane. Right, right. They're gorgeous and they're hilarious and they're. I remember going to her house once for and David, her brother David, and Paul, her brother Paul. They got her a gift. And the gift was she, they bought her a wheelchair. Yeah, that wooden one? Yeah. That old doctory one? Yeah. yeah. 
She was so really excited about it. They bought her a wheelchair. She wanted a wheelchair. I know. Cindy. I know. That's what she Believe wanted. Believe me, I know. I was lucky enough when I was doing Nurse Jackie last the year. I don't right, know what years it is. Yes. You did two seasons? One. One season. I only do one season. <laughs> and then I move on. No, um, but we were able to spend a lot of, kind of reconnect and spend a lot of time together when I was in New York this oh, last Oh, I see. Time. Not that she was on Nurse Jackie. You just were No, I was just, yeah. So I was there for like seven months six months. Mm-hmm. And so we got to, you know, chat and see each other and hang out with Paul and the baby and, um, Nicole. Paul and the baby. Oh, Paul, Paul's baby. Paul's baby. Not Amy's baby. Paul Danello married, um, right. Danielle, beautiful right. girl. And they had a little boy. Jean Is Carlo. he going to, he must he, be he, going to, to CBS too. Oh yeah. I'm sure of it. I mean, I can't make those statements, but right. I know that I'm sure that Stephen likes having it. I mean, he's been on the show for like four or five years. Right. At least four or five years, right? Not since the beginning. Really? Mm-hmm. He, he did some segment stuff in the uh-huh. beginning. And I think he had some conflict about, you know, taking that step. But he's a, I'm sure he's a, you know. How do we, how do we end up doing what it is that we're doing? I, you know, I, I know that that's a really vague question, but who would have, I mean, I'm looking at your producing credits and- you produced television shows. You were supervising for I know. It's crazy. And, and like, you just kind of go, this is where, this is the direction I'm going. And now I was writing on this show and now I'm going to be a writer producer. Is that how that works? Well, the writing thing is, is, um, what's that word I want? Not ambiguous. It's, um, deceiving because when you're on a show, you always write, mm-hmm. no matter what your additional producing, uh, duties are. It's just weird because like when you're at SNL, you're in charge of your own sketch. Right. You produce it from the beginning to the end. You go to the rehearsals, you take the notes, you direct, you know, outside of the camera director, you tell the, you know, the cast what you need, where you're going to cut, blah, 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 blah. You're fully, you go down to like editing and come up with font for the name of the talk show. You pick out the music. That's pretty great. So it's pretty great. So then when you, when you transfer, not transfer, but move into half hour mm-hmm. as a staff writer because it's really difficult to go into half writer anything above a half staff writer half hour mm-hmm. even though you've had like 2700 years of comedy before you got there um then you're basically no they don't want to hear from you on my first job norm mcdonald hired me who's been so gracious to me my whole career was he on snl when you were yes yeah. he did the news he then. did weekend update right and uh so i came from SNL, three years. Mm-hmm. I came from Second City. I came from years of doing my own sketch shows, my own write plays, all that. And I'm with 10 men and one tiny lesbian who I adore named Cheryl Holiday. And that's it. That's our thing. And I'm basically pulled into a room at one point saying, please don't talk so much. That's the story of my life is that fucking thing. Please don't talk so much. And I'm like, well, okay. But, you know, whatever. Please don't talk so much. We don't need you to talk that much. Is it, we don't need you, lady, to talk so much, or we don't need you to talk so much? Well, I think it's more, we don't need you, staff writer, who's never been here before, even though you're really funny, when we're trying to break stories and we need to concentrate, talk so much. Now I see that, that that's what it was. Got it. And do you agree with that? I think there is something to that because when you're in a room and everyone's yelling out ideas, it's hard to think. It's a different animal. It's a different machine. Um, and, you know, truth be told, I didn't know it. No but one tells at the you. Same time, no one tells you. No one tells you, listen, this is the way you, you got to learn it by someone going, come here. Don't yes, talk so much. Exactly. It's not like, we're going to do this. Make sure you don't talk so much. And it's not either that I got out of college and wanted to be a sitcom writer and here's my spec and can I be a staff writer? Mm-hmm. It's me coming in in my mid-30s, having a, a lifetime of experience in comedy, being the only woman, straight woman on staff. You know what I mean? Like, it, not that that part doesn't really mean anything except to say, why can't I talk? I have a lot of experience. You know what I mean? Right. Right. It's a very, it's a very, I was not planning on being a television writer. I had a development deal to come to uh, a development deal after I did Debutante Ball, which was another solo show, show I did after I left SNL. 
that year at Piven directed. I did it in Chicago. Uh-huh. And then after SNL ended in 98, I wanted to, I left SNL because I wanted to perform more and I didn't think I would get any more chances because I wasn't an ingenue. So I did, I went to the, actually Evan Gore set me up at the HBO workspace. I brought my show there. I did it one night and I got a gazillion offers to develop. Uh-huh. I didn't know everybody and their sister had a development deal. Right. I thought I was very special. Did you special. get paid for it? Oh, not, yeah. I, yeah. So I pitched, you know, I was going to write and star in my own show. And they brought in a showrunner to help me because I... Did, did you know the showrunner? No. Her name was Nancy Steen. She was hilarious. And she was sort of a, um, a veteran TV writer. Mm-hmm. So and you guys got along. Great. She uh-huh. was from Minnesota. She was hilarious. She mm-hmm. was... Oh, the funniest bit she ever did was she got a haircut. She was really tall in Minnesota, like like, like a Renee. Renee. Right. Yes, uh-huh. she had gotten a haircut. I'm like, oh my god, Nancy, your hair's so cute. And she goes, is a little, it's a little gay, a little dykey. And I'm like, no. And she goes, what about when I do this? And she put herself in a batting position. <laughs> I don't, something about it made me laugh so hard because her batting stance was so fantastic. And she was really tall with short blonde hair. It just made me laugh. <laughs> and so, um, anyhow, what happened was that deal didn't happen. And I didn't know most of the deals don't happen. And then my agent was like, well, time to get a job. And I didn't in the moment have the wherewithal to say, well, I want to keep writing and performing, not be a staff writer on, like, I I let other people's, you know, ideas kind of dictate my direction. but, But at that time, and it's interesting that you're saying that because I feel like that's called evolution. That's not a mistake. That's just, how, how did you know any better? You did not know any better, right, right? Right, So it wasn't as if you went, I really want to do this, but they forced me to do that. It was like, I didn't know what I wanted to do, so they offered me that, <laughs> you know? And that's really different. Well, I think also at the end of the day, it has to do more with owning what you know you know. You know what I owning mean? Owning like, what you know you know. So in other words, I was a writer-performer. And what happens is you... For me, you know, you're going after these writing jobs and I tried to keep my performance part alive. And I think that's why I wound up ultimately doing essays and doing essay nights and then wind up, that's how I wound up doing the book. Right, the book that you just- So I was able to perform a little bit by reading these stories. So that's how I kind of kept it alive. I was having a really hard time balancing auditioning and writing and it was getting difficult unless I was going to go somewhere and they would say, write and produce your own show. So what you did was you hybrided it. I did. I hybrided it. it. You hybrided it. So you took what it is that you took what it is that you got paid for and you took what it is that you love to do and you mushed them with a sparkling drop of Retson. (laughs) Right? Sort of. But... Yes, that's what I did. And and in that way, because I talk to so many people these days and... It's surprising when I say to them, you get paid to be who you are. Your job is you. And what you did was you created your job for you. Well, yeah. I mean, I think after a while, you kind of have to, um, I don't want to say keep reinventing yourself, but you are kind of. But you're not reinventing yourself. You're evolving. Yeah, I agree with that statement. I like that more because I feel like. This was always my thing, this, this way to stel- tell stories, how uh, my stories are. You're pointing are. at your... I'm pointing at my Kindle, but inside my Kindle is my book. Got it. And so, um, and I brought it because I wanted to show you some pictures if you were interested in seeing them. But mm-hmm. at any rate, um, what I found myself doing a lot, like even after I was here, after I did the Norm show, I wrote here, another... Here being LA. In LA. Right. I wrote another one woman show. Mm-hmm. And basically what it did was it got me another development deal. Mm-hmm. So I found myself in this pattern of either being on staff, writing these shows, which are super labor intensive and like- These shows being? One person shows. Got it. Mm-hmm. And the endurance level is insane. And I think I didn't, I didn't want to write another one person show. I had all these beautiful stories. I liked reading them out loud. I started reading them out loud and I liked reading, you know, kind of half reading, half performing because it didn't have the onus of, this, you're going to watch me do a show, and right. I'm putting them in air quotes, um, for like an hour. And so this kind of evolved do I, into I this. see you with reading glasses, putting them on and taking them off while you talk to the audience. 
I I'm don't take that. them off that much because I've had them on so long. I need them now right. most of the time. Right. It's the readers going, yes. and you know what? I want to talk to you as I'm putting, <laughs> you're taking them off and putting them down. That's such a great uh, mind prop to do. Yeah, Listen, it is. I wanted to tell you something. Can I talk to you for a second? <laughs> it's always She's this. lifting up your glasses and putting them down. Um, so anyhow, I, I think this thing that came out of having a bad year last year in terms of like every year I either staffed or I sold. And some years... I sold more than one thing. Sometimes I staffed and sold. Mm -hmm. This has been going on for coming up since 1990, so almost 20 years, 19 mm -hmm. years. And I feel very fortunate. And it, you know, and then last year, it was a little slow. It slower was slower than I could have imagined. It wasn't a little slow, it was slow. Yes, it was slow. Mm -hmm. it, but it gave me the time to self publish a book. You, so in that time, you didn't go, what's happening to me? You went, I got to do something. Well, I did have about a week of what's happening to me. Mm -hmm. I had a week of that sort of like, it's okay not to know what's coming. That can be exciting. That lasted maybe one bath, one tub, one soak. And then I'm like, what am I doing? And then I'm like, I got to get this book out. I've been talking about it for a year. It's been like walking through molasses. Right. I've been crying every day about it. Right. And I put on Facebook, does anybody know someone who could help me with an ebook? My friend Annie said, my friend Lisa's in town. She just got here from Chicago. I met with Lisa. She was, um, she's uh, a, started out as a librarian, went to art school, started out as a librarian. And now she does like digital archivation. If archivation is a word, you'd I think, think I would archivated. know some words. And um, so basically she and I have Does she been call working. it I archivate? Does she say I archivate? Maybe archivist. Maybe archivist. But I would like to, for her to say... Uh, I like say, archivate. I, I archivate. Sounds more um, action. Yeah, it does. It's like an uh, 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 if you're an archivator, I think you, you probably have tools. <laughs> yes, Like exactly. a little, a tiny shovel. And a tiny chisel. A tiny chisel. <laughs> a chislet. And a shovelet. And a shovelet. <laughs> right. And um, so basically, we did the whole thing. And I, and I got some fancy friends to write, you know, blurbs and forewords like Adam McKay and Amy Sedaris right. and Colbert. Right. And, um, uh, you had them write blurbs and forewords. Those are, that's a really good sentence. <laughs> I, had, I had them write blurbs and forewords. Adam McKay wrote the most beautiful foreword I ever could have imagined. And then Colin Quinn did one and Stephen did a blurb, Amy did mm -hmm. a blurb. And then I just relied on the kindness of strangers. Right. Right. So now it's coming out in paperback, May 9th. God. I hired a PR guy, and I'm just going to finish the process. Right. Finish the process. Meaning I'm taking it out of the Kindle world. Right. And I'm putting it into paperback. Right. And then you can order it on paperback and have an actual book. What made you decide to do that? Like you had enough sales or you thought I can make more money this way? I feel like I need something in my hand for my own posterity. Prosperity. Right. Prosterity. That's a that's a rear end that lasts for a long time. <laughs> you have prosperity. It's a very, yes, long, happy rump. Uh, so, Which is different than a long, happy rump. <laughs> it was um, funny. I was Wayne. I always call him Wayne Dwyer. Matt Dwyer interviewed me, and I kept calling, saying the word squell. And my husband's looking at me going, I don't think it's squell. I'm like, what? It's either squelch, it's quelch, or, or wait, what are the words? Squelch? Squelch or, or quell, quell. yes. But you, if you squelch it, <laughs> you, wait, squelch or quell. And what were you saying? I was, I was saying squell. Squell. I don't, I, that, the concept <laughs> of that makes me explode. It really, it's like, how do you, it's like an internal explosion and you're put, um, so you decided you wanted something for posterity. There we go. Yes. You, for posterity. Pros, so you wanted something for pros, pro, posterity, um, something to have in your hands and to look and at. And to I give get people. It. I get it. I get it. And I'm adding two more stories. One, maybe two more. And you know, the book has beautiful color photographs of my family, mm -hmm. my mom in the 50s with my older sister in the backyard, my dad in this fantastic 70s gold curtain having a Budweiser, you know, me and him going to a high school dance, you know, a, a father-daughter dance together. Like, they're crazy. So your dad was a fireman. Yes. He a re fire, fireman. Fire, he retired as a fire chief, uh, <laughs> battalion chief. On the south side? Yeah. What parish did you grow up in? St. Gabriel. St. Gabriel. 45th um, and Wallace. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, 
because I read one of your stories online, you were in, uh, on Wallace Street. So, uh, uh, did you have, you you have one brother or two brothers? Two brothers. You have two brothers. Three sisters. A and anybody a firefighter? No. Johnny's a comedian, and right. Billy works in San Francisco in, for the San Francisco Department of Transportation. Uh-huh. He's sort of a computer-y guy who, I think it's a little Chandler Bing-ish, because I can't really name it, but... <laughs> Uh -huh. He's uh, kind of a high up gentleman in the fleet you, division. But you grew up with firefighters oh, and all with cops. Yes, all my all my cousins are electricians, cops. My dad's an electrician. Oh yeah, union electrician. Yeah, union yeah. electrician. Yeah. I have a whole slew of them. Right, growing up in Chicago is different than growing up in Lagrange. I'm sorry. Oh, way different, Lagrangers. People say, I grew up in Chicago. What part? Yeah. Lagrange. Highland Park is not Chicago. Fuck no. Winnetka, right? not Chicago. Mm -hmm. Wilmette, not Chicago. Mm -hmm. Sorry. And Sorry. Richard Label lives in one of those cities. Right. And I don't know. If you're one. not under a fire hydrant in your bathing suit with high heels on, you're not in Chicago. Right. Right. <laughs> I love that city. Do you I ever know. make it back? Oh, I go all the time. I I'm do going too. again next week. I was, I was there twice this month. I was there, and then I came back, and I was Are there. Are your again. folks still there? Yeah, north side. Uh, my family's still there. A lot of people, a lot of Jews moved to Buffalo Grove. Don't get Where it. Where is Buffalo Grove? Buffalo Grove, who the fuck knows? It's like near, it's Israel. It might as well be Israel. I have no idea where it's it is. It's far, right? Yeah. Where do you live? Where do you guys live? White Sox near, like. No, where do you live? Oh, Sherman Oaks near Sepulveda and Mulholland. You guys have a house? Yes. Because I could not live in any of the, 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 the apartment buildings over there. Oh no! Those wide things that have the—it's—it's it's like something out of Barton Fink, but not as awesome. That's what's so great about your place. It's really Chicago. Yeah, really Chicago. But I couldn't live anywhere else, and it's one of these things where it's like I'm going to find the place that I want to live in. Um, and it also has to do with this is who I this is who I am. I, if you put me in one of those buildings, I wouldn't know. I would have to burn all my furniture. I, you mean, you're talking about the ones sort of like the ones near, like in the valley? Yeah. Well, you know, here's what's interesting. L.A. is so overpopulated now. People are not, the valley's not the worst place in the world to be anymore. Mm -hmm. And there's some really new, a lot of new condo buildings going up. Mm -hmm. Did I give you my real estate card? Because I have <laughs> a couple of one bedrooms <laughs> with a skylight oh, of the new God. Ralphs. Are you, no, you don't. No. No. Um, no. But anyhow, yeah, I get it. Some of them are icky, but there's there's some. They're trying to keep up with the Joneses over the hill. I know. I love. The, I love. For me, I feel like I need the walking around. I. I yeah. No. The this, but your area is beautiful too. Yeah, but I, I get inspired, and I feel like the inspiration. If I, I get inspired by the buildings and the age of the no, buildings, I'm inspired by and people and people. Walking down to Larchmont, I'm sure, is awesome. It really is awesome. Walking down to Larchmont and hearing, I live across the street from a school. Right. And to hear the kids screaming at the school, that's awesome. I need that stimulus. I really need that sort I of I know. Stuff. I wish I still had it. I've always lived in the hills since I've been here. I lived in Beverly Glen, and then we live in the hilly part. So you're kind of, you're a little bit isolated, mm -hmm. unless you're in the car. What's your What's your writing regimen? Like, how do you, how do, you do that? Do you do I that? I don't write. No, you know, I... I write when I need to write. I mean, the book was hard because I didn't have a deadline. Right. Um, right. Scripts for work are easy because I have a deadline. Right. Um, Do you work at home? Yeah, but I, I have to get really focused. Um, I don't write every morning. I, I know. I know people say that, and I probably would be better if I did that. But I do. I spend a lot of time thinking before I write, and then I wind up writing fast because it's all in my brain. Mm -hmm. It kind of lays out. It doesn't mean I don't rewrite and edit and change things around. Um, and I'd rather rewrite than write. Got it. Because you've already put it down. Yeah. But um, no, I do not write every day. That regimen of writing every day, getting up and writing, I think I'm too old for that. I don't know. Of going, oh, how do I do that? Because I have a book idea. And I've got it, and I, even I talked about it at Fred Cass's memorial. I have a book idea, and I've got all the I've all I've all the basic shit that I need laid out. I've laid it out on the computer, and then I went, I'll come back to it years later. Do you later. have um, the material, or you have the ideas for the material? I have the 
ideas for the material. This is it. Um, it could be a billion things. It's a billion things. Well, you have to decide on that. That's exactly it. But always it. remember, too, executives love source material. So if you write your book, it's easier to sell a book than it is for you to sell a screenplay because people don't know you as a screenplay writer or no. a television writer. I don't know that I'm even writing it to be sold. I'm just God. saying, when you're saying it can be a million things, what right. do you mean? The idea can be a million things? It's, is it about my philosophy about improvisation? Is it about how to, the creative process? Is it about how do you live your life uh, to be an artist and just to accept the things? Is it about how you live your life as a lay person and just living a life of accepting things? Because a lot of what I teach and I do has nothing to do, my improv classes are, their improv classes only in clothing. Because it's really about how are you feeling right now about what you're doing right now? What's your emotional content right now? And it's about being present. So it's sort of like a theatrical Buddhism in a way. Well, I don't, everything you just mentioned sounds like it could all live together. Mm -hmm. And it just has to be with how, I mean, you can break it down. You know what you need? Every house needs one. You need a big dry erase board. Right. And then instead of putting it on your computer, you, go, you walk by it with your marker because you paint. Right. So you know what that's like. You walk by with your marker and you write this idea down. And then what will happen is they'll start, you'll start seeing what things go together. And then, that and is then you it. know what the other thing is too? You don't have to write it. This idea that I have to get this thing done Maybe you're not supposed to write it. What is it? What did you mean? I mean that we're kooky people. So if we keep saying we have to, we have to, there may be a day when you say, you know what? It's okay whether I do it or not. And that will be the day that you actually wind up doing something. Right. And I think because also you're rebelling against your own parenting to make yourself have to do it. That's exactly it. And what I is it buying you? And and when you say you have to do it, as opposed to I get to I get to, to but do no my one book. says I get to do it. Well, it's not I about understand a book. the philosophy. Right, right. Like you don't right. have to, you know. I, know. But I do you live get that to way. Do it. Right. I, I like that idea of staying grateful and saying I get to, but it's a very difficult. It is a place difficult to get practice. To. Right. It's a really hard but place to get to. But if you can, to. you can split the difference and say I don't have to do it. Right. And then maybe that'll get you to the place where you can That's say, I get to do it. That's an interesting thing. So you don't, don't have, have to, to make do take all those steps to, mm -hmm. I have to, I get to. In the There's a middle ground, which is, I don't have to. What is it that you got out of writing your book that you didn't think that would happen? That you didn't see coming? What I didn't see coming was creating this emotional space to get strong enough to handle whatever the reaction is. Cool. That's why it took me so long. I had to build up my experiences, everything I see, it takes me a couple years to emotionally be able to execute it. So I felt the book for a couple years and I couldn't do it, couldn't do it. And even when I had somebody, I, every day it was just like, because I was going through old photographs, everything was making me feel so much. But I kept, and my husband just said to me the other day, I've never seen you work harder on something. And um, because every day I had to go in and do more. Usually when it's time for me to write something, I just, my deadline is Saturday. I start on Monday. You know what I mean? But, and also this promotion part is very, uh, it's really hard to just be like, yes, I'm going to walk through this PR campaign, whatever that looks like. You know what I mean? But I really do feel based on, because it was such a personal work, because it was so much about my family and my neighborhood, I was very concerned initially about how my family was going to react to it. And as soon as it came out, all of my cousins fell in love with it. And I was just like, I, but I had to be able to handle anything they said. And I think that's what, in, in a long way to say, that's what I think the time was about. I read a story that you did, a short story about the earrings. Yes. And it seemed like the major character in that, obviously the major character in that story was your mom. And how much of what you're talking about now must be in reflection of her. Does that make sense? Well, I know that... Um, Is she still alive? No, she passed away. That was mm -hmm. another reason why it was so hard. Mm -hmm. Because she's a little over two years gone. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, fucking hell. You know what? They still, it's not like 
you have that first year and you're like, okay, I get it. Now you can come back. They don't fucking come back. <laughs> right. You're like, right. you're going to be gone more now, not less. Right. There's that Loudon Rain Wainwright uh, story about his dad and saying when his dad died, he, he'd go to a restaurant and he said, he was thinking, I'll go to the restaurant we used to go to, but it'd be just so weird because everybody like what they would ask about you, where did you go? And I go to your closet where your stuff is and your stuff is still there and you're shoes are there why would you leave without your shoes mm. and that's a sentence you know why would you leave without I love your wallet him. um and and that song just gets me and my parents are still alive but so you're saying that to release this and have all that information was she somebody that was very uh and i'm asking this because uh, i don't know was she a, a supportive of you and the things that you were doing she was, but at the same time, I sh she was one of those people that my parents didn't tell you how well you were doing. They told your brothers and sisters. So you never knew. I mean, there was a couple very clear times when she said she was very proud of me or whatever. But my friend who I pay told me years later that maybe one of the reasons my relationship with her was so conflicted was because I needed to stay mad so I could leave. Got because it. if I wasn't mad or angry, I wouldn't have been able to leave. Right. And if I couldn't leave, I couldn't have the, my, the life that was supposed to be mine. Right. Did you have to manufacture a reason to be mad? No. Great. They offered it. The raw materials <laughs> they were there. They offered me some raw materials <laughs> to stay mad. Because I don't know how you, how you manufacture. I know how. Everybody manufactures mad all the time. Yes. They manufacture anger and mad, and they just manufacture that. But it had to do with, there was a couple of very clear moments where I reached out to her mm -hmm. in a way to offer a friendship or a closeness or whatever, and there was no response. So there, I had shut down very early. Mm -hmm. And whether or not she recognized how important it was to me, whether she um, couldn't do it because of how she was wired, right. maybe I was just too fucking needy. Who but knows? what came first? And, but here's another thing. There's nothing that you exactly. can do about it on any end of right. that thing. And I look at so many people go, I wish I had a different relationship with my parents. It's like, I don't know how you would do that. I don't know. You can wish it. But why are you spending the time wishing it where it's not going to change anything? Because, again, you weren't airdropped into that situation. Right. You built up all of this experience and history and things. And the decisions that you made at the time that you're making those decisions seemed like what you were supposed right. to do at that exactly. time. Exactly. I feel the same exact way. Every decision led to the other one. If you were making that decision with the, with the most presence of mind that you could have, then that was the moment you were in and that got you to the next moment. Right. And unless you were drugged or something like that, I don't know how, and people are, of course, but unless you were drugged or something like that, I don't know how you make those irrational, how you look at some, some decisions and think that was an irrational decision because you were, everything was predicated upon you making that decision. Again, assuming that you weren't drunk or stoned or anything like well, that. Well, that's a big assumption. <laughs> well, mean, that is true too. You know what I mean? Yes, and, and, and yet I'm on talking, their side and my side. Right. I'm not talking about you in particular. No, but I'm saying right. there was there was a lot of drinking right. in my home, and right. so they made decisions based on self. Right. I made decisions based on self. Right. We retaliated. Mm -hmm. um, but happily, I was able to reach a point that by the end of her life, I could love her unconditionally. Right. What a freeing thing that is. That was very freeing. You just wanted to make me cry. I don't know. Is there any other reason to be on the earth than to make Cindy Capanera cry? Um, but it is that that thing of that surrender. And to be at peace with that is just so vital. To realize that there, there I'm, I'm not capable. Some relationships, the acceptance of saying this person's emotional output is as much as they can do. Right. And there's not, I cannot pull any more out of them because they're doing the best job that they can do. But right you can't now. get there unless you do your personal work. Clearly. Right? Because you're, as a kid, that's the other thing. You're always fighting as an adult 
That's why they always say there's four people in the room. It's little you, younger them, older you, older them. So <laughs> it's sort of like, I'm not going to have a fight with my 81-year-old father about something he did when he was 30. Right. I have to be a grown-up now. I can talk to him about it, but I don't talk to him about 15, as a 15-year-old. Right. And so I think that's the conflict. Certainly. And I, I think one of the things, because starting a new relationship, I'm in a new relationship now, and I wonder how many of my reactions to... Uh, to, to this woman are, aren't reactions to her, right. but are reactions to my ex-wife of 14 years. Yes, of course. And, and that's go, good for her to be able to, if she can step back and say to you, you know that's not about me right. right. I never said that to you once. Right. Oh, and that's just so important because that's, an, uh, that's something that just happened where she said, this is not about me. And I went, mm. no, it's not. Right. And then I went, Bleh. and then she said, why were you all about that? And now you're about not, why were you all angry? And now you're not. And my thought was because I wasn't in response to you. I was in response to a ghost. Yes, exactly. I have to tell my husband that all the time. I don't know where you got that information, but you did not get it from me. <laughs> right? So. Yeah. Because we do bring these things always. up. Always. And it's hard to, you know, you don't always get it in the moment. Sometimes you have to walk away, have a cup of coffee, call a friend, and they go, wait a second, Did, isn't this this issue? And you're like, so that's the, oh my God, I saw the funniest thing on Modern Family. It's a long story, but the end beat is that the mother goes into the daughter's room and says, you have to teach me how to use the remote control. And the daughter says, why can't daddy teach you? And she says, because we're married. And it's like, yes. And sometimes when you're married or when you're in a long-term relationship, you don't want to say you're sorry one more fucking time. It's like, I've said it six times today. I will not say it again. And it doesn't mean that you're not sorry. No, it, it just means, means not let's... today. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also, I said it and I meant it when I said it. Is that what you're saying? No, you... I mean like sometimes when you're, mm. you're so human, right? you're so fallible. That in the moment, you might not be able to recognize that it's a ghost. And right. you say those things. Got it. It doesn't mean that you meant it. You were re like, you're keeping your side of the street clean as you saying, I recognize now that what I said to you was inappropriate because it was really meant for my ex-wife. Right. So I'm really sorry. Right. And then they say, you were an asshole, but okay. Right. I forgive you. Right. And let's not bring it up again. Exactly. But if they say, if they can't take the apology and have to like read you the riot act while they're accepting the apology, then that's on them. Right. And that's not an apology. I mean, I'm accepting. sorry, that's not accepting an yeah. apology. Um, um, uh, <laughs> Katie used to say, we'd have a fight and she'd go, she'd say, I'm sorry that you feel that. I'm sorry that you feel that way. And at first I thought that's an apology. And then I realized, no, that's not an apology. No, she's basically saying to you, you're allowed to have your feelings. Right. And I didn't see it like that. Boy, there's so much of that in that relationship that I had that I think if I was as present as I am now, I may still be married. That could be true. That but could be true. Unless you're going willing to go back and give it a go, then right. you just live with the lessons and move on. And that's what it is. It's like living that lesson. And I cannot go back because when, I mean, you've been married once, but you know what it's like to be in a, you know, that divorce thing where you go, it's, it's a shattering. It is an absolute shattering of your entire world and everything around it. I know. I can't imagine it. Oh, my God. And everything that you do, your everything that you do and who you are is affected by it in that moment and at that moment. And there's a wake that, that reaches a certain shore that you didn't even realize mm. where you go, oh, I can't talk to that person anymore. Or that person won't talk to me anymore. Or I want to talk to that person. Or whatever that's going to be. I want to call up Katie and go, you know who I saw the other day? And you can't do that. Well, why can't you do it? I have done that. But I mean, you I, can yeah. later. Right. You can't and that's do what it. ended up yeah, happening. Yeah. I'll say, I saw this thing and I thought about you. And those moments are like, oh my God, those moments are beautiful moments. The last time I saw her, she moved to Asheville, North Carolina. The last time I saw her was one of the most beautiful things. She mm. said, come to the house, pick up your stuff. You got some stuff there. And we'd been divorced for three or four years at that time. And I looked there and I said, and I thought to myself, I, may, I will never, I may never see her again. And we gave this hug that was just one of the most beautiful, where you hold, you've been, you held on to someone for 14 years. You know every single inch of them. So when they hug you, 
are when you have that intimacy. There's a I, lot of sense memory, yeah. Oh my God, it's just so full. It's just so full. But I think that's what makes life sucky and good. Because those moments are always that. And so it's this, this idea that happiness is one thing and sadness or sorrow is another thing. It's just wrong. It's all, everything is all things all the time. Everything's all things all the time. And so what are you, what are you looking at? What are you choosing to experience? And, uh, you know, they're always going to walk together. Every job is a mixed blessing. Everything is always a mixed blessing. They're always going to walk together. Always. That's a lovely thing to say. They're always going to walk together because that's exactly what it is. I'm reading a book now called Flow, and it came out maybe 10 or 15 years ago, and I can't pronounce the guy's name who's written it. But he talks about paying attention to the experiences that you have and just to go, we're living our lives with all of these experiences, and what is it that you're deciding to engage in and what is it that you're deciding right. not to engage in? And whatever it is that you're deciding to engage in or not deciding to engage or deciding to not engage in, those are the things that make up yourself. Right. The self, the being, the who it is that we are. And when you, pardon me, when you find yourself, when you find yourself in a place of um, turmoil, it's because you're really not accepting something or you're deciding to engage in something that isn't here. Yeah. Or trying to change the thing that you can't accept. There's your AA. You know, there's your, isn't that what mm-hmm. you know, the program is all about where you say, you know, <laughs> accepting, you know, just accept what you can't change those but things. But I think it takes a moment, it takes a while it's not denial necessarily. I guess it is. It's sort of like, I can't believe this is happening. Why is this happening? Is this really happening? Oh, I guess it is happening. So, I mean, by the time you accept the things you cannot change, right. you've already been beaten up a little bit. Right. At, at your disbelief, at your not. So, I guess the sooner you can get to acceptance, the better it's going to be. But I think it's human nature to be like, wait, what's happening? Right. Is, is this really happening? Did she just say that to me? Was she doing a bit? Because it sounded like a bit, but do people really say mean things like that to each other? Should I respond to it? I've never had it happen before. Right. Should I laugh at it and pretend like it's a bit? Should I stand up for myself and say, you know what? That hurt my feelings or you can't talk to me that way or you're a fucking bitch. And you know, like, I remember getting being in Amagansett when I was uh, living in New York, and a what dog, is that place? Uh, you know, at the in the Hamptons. Okay. And the do- a dog bit me on the nose, and I remember very clearly thinking, "I've never been bit on the nose. How should I react? Is it hurting me? Should I cry? Should I make the man pay for my my rhinoplasty and I can get a whole new nose?" What did that dog do? Am I bleeding? Like it in, was in re- such in, a short amount of time, yeah. too, right? And then he would call me and say, uh, "Yeah, I'd like to settle this thing." And I'm like, "Well, like I could have fucking had I been a different person with maybe some higher self esteem. I don't know. I could have or a less uh, moral or you know person with integrity. I could have said, "I need surgery because I have two little scars on my nose." I'm an actress and I have a scar on my nose. Like, I, I don't know. And I'm sure he was worried. Of course. But he wound up, you know, his dog wound up hurting a woman with, you know, who lived in a five-floor walk-up. What did I care? I wasn't like, I didn't know anything from suing someone. And not only that, who wants to hold up that whole thing about the suing thing? And it's like all that time that you put into like suing. Oh, I know. And I'm a true, I'm like, I'm going to tell the truth. Does it look that bad? No. Am I ever going to be the actress that people are going to like? be the beauty person? Probably not. Um, so what is two little things on my nose with some aloe on it? Like at any rate, it's, it's for me, that whole, what you're saying right there, it's the amount of time, those of us, those of us, those of us, I'm going to put myself in there. The, uh, the amount of time, uh, uh, to get to the point of acceptance, uh, this is just the way it is. The amount of time to get to that point of acceptance has become shorter and shorter and shorter as I get older yes. and am more aware of the joy of the acceptance. So there's that that phrase, and I've mentioned before in this, that, that Michael, Reverend Michael Bernard Beckwith says, like when he's a challenge is thrown at him, he kind of leans back, symbolically leans back on the couch and says, I wonder how the universe is going to take care of this one. Nice. And just to go, I cannot wait to find out what that's going to be like. And the more that you realize, you know what? Everything always works out. Yes, always. It does. 
you have to allow room in every situation for some kind of spiritual solution to present itself. Because always it always does present itself. And it's and I don't mean a religious solution. And I, I don't even mean angels, hocus pocus, anything. Some way there's some other energy in every situation that's not your energy or the energy of the thing coming at you. And if you make space for whatever that third energy is, you will be shown a solution. And if you make space for whatever that third energy is, you will be shown a solution. Clearly. Clearly. And it's that stepping back and, and taking those moments when your nose was bitten by that dog to go, all this stuff is happening right now. I'm going to sit back and go, what do I need to do right now? Just what do I need to do? Right. What's in front of me? What's in front of me? Not what's this trial going to be like or what am I going to do with the money? Should I sue them? Or how is all, any of that just to say what's going to happen? Because what's going to happen doesn't matter. But it also has to do with you doing what's right for yourself instinctively. And I think it takes a long time to discern what your instinct is. And so you're going to get a lot of input from people. You should have sued them. You should have, why didn't you blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, I did what I was capable of doing at the moment. That's it. I did what I was capable of doing at the moment. I did what I, I remember breaking my foot and thinking, oh, I live alone. I live on the second floor. I, I don't have a girlfriend. I don't have a connection. I don't have a laundromat. And I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. That was this is going to be interesting. Right. And it was. And I don't remember being in pain. I remember thinking, oh, uh, my coffee cup's over six feet away, and I have a broken foot. This is going to be interesting to get my coffee cup. A shower was just an unbelievable experience. <laughs> you know, to get into a, a shower. What's that? We call it a shub. A shub? It's sort of like you put the tub water on, and oh. you do a lot of splashing. <laughs> And then you oh, is that what it is? Yeah, I call when it you, a shove. A shove? Mm -hmm. A shove. The greatest thing that I discovered was this thing called a shower chair. Oh, yeah. Sure. I think and everybody could, should have a shower chair. You could stick your foot out and then take a shower. Well, I would chair. leave my foot in there, but I could. I would sit in that chair and I, like I get a Korean bath. <laughs> Did you do the Korean bath? Did you ever do those? I, I haven't. I, they, I, they make me nervous. Why? Too many little hands and scrubbing. I don't Got know it. where they're going to go. And I'm going to be wet and soapy and naked. And there's going to be little teeny hands all over my body. And that, I don't it. know what to do about that. Did you, did you, are you a churchgoer now? No, I do not go. I meditate mm -hmm. and I, I, I actually try different churches. Like I'll go to Catholic church when I'm home, if there's a mass for my mother or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and I, like, I love the Jewish church. There's something. It's called the temple. Oh, yeah, the temple. I don't go to temple, but I've been to a couple of our mitzvahs, mm -hmm. and I love them because the parents get up and basically tell everyone how much they love their kid. That, to me, is a very sweet moment. I also love that they're okay with having money, Right. that they do their good works on earth by mitzvah and charity work. So there's a lot of it that makes sense to me. There's a lot of it that doesn't, of course, but there's a lot of it spiritually that makes sense to me I in the Judas, Judas, uh, I keep Jewish. saying Judas, Judas, that's a Jewish different, that's a different faith. guy, right? The Judas faith is yes, a very in the Judas. Some faith. people would say the same, the same thing. Um, I think that kids, I, I love the idea of the spirituality as opposed to the religious religiosity because spirituality, like let's teach people what spirituality means and then offer them a deity. You have to be kind. able to find it without a building. If you can find it without a building, then you don't have to go to a Catholic church that's molesting its kids. Right. But if you don't find it without the building, right. then you keep giving money to an entity that's not taking care of you. Right. That's not taking care of you. On so many levels, right. it's not taking care but of you. But if you know in your heart it's there, then the what you just said, the afterthought is maybe I want to be with a community of like-minded people. Right. Maybe I want to take what I like and leave the rest. Maybe I want to enjoy part of the ceremony of this beautiful procession and Christmas, you know, mass and all of its light and all that. But all of its light, you're saying the, uh, the light, the, the beauty of the, the beauty of that, not of the tradition the of it. the whatever the tradition is, right. you know, like the bar mitzvah, the beauty of the sound of the Torah being read or in, you know, the beauty of the Om in a in a Buddhist practice like you can get the beauty of all those practices 
and sort of create your own if you know that you don't have to be in one. Right. Right. You don't have to be in one to be able to, because I totally agree with that. Um, one of the things about Agape Spiritual Center, do you know that place? Yes. Yeah. Is they have this meditation service. And to call it a meditation service is like, it's not really a service. Some woman goes, and we're going to do, and you're doing, and ding, ding, ding. <laughs> and so for 15 minutes, 1,500 people are quiet. It's very powerful. Even when I'm meditating with a group of people, I do Vedic meditation. Um, you're, and when you do it all together, it's very powerful. You go much deeper. Right. And Right, and you're listening to breath, and you're listening to, you're sharing this, and nothing is bothering you. You're not engaging in anything bothering you. Right, because in that moment, you forgive the bothers. Like in my meditation, they say, think of all those outside noises as just extra thoughts that you're just going to let move through your brain. It's interesting, because when, uh, when I teach certain things, I uh, will we'll take a moment just to stand in a circle and just... Um, be in soft focus and just to pay attention to nothing and then to layer all these sounds upon the nothing, that, that sound of silence, so to speak, that, that is underneath everything. And then we layer, we, we just take an inventory of all the sounds that are on top of that. And I'll ask them, who heard a sound? And a lot of people, I'll tell them the sound. And I'll say, who heard a noise? And someone will say, oh, that car going by was a noise. I say, what made it a noise? And they'll say, well, it bothered me. Did it make it go away? Or did you calling it a noise made it more, really highlighted it as something right, that you right. don't want to do? What if you just call that a sound? So all those things that come at you, you're not attaching it to, why is that here trying to get right. in my way? Right. Or getting in my way. Well, I think attaching is the key word. The ability and non-attachment to not, the is... The non-attaching right. is what gives you the freedom. Right. The non-attachment is what gives you the freedom. And a lot of people say, it's impossible for me to, to non-attach. And I want to say this, if you say so. <laughs> and I want to say this, if you say so. Yep, because that's really true, right? If you say that that's bother that bothers me or I can't unattach, then you're making that... A reality. What I've been observing is the idea of non-attachment is one thing, but where does it fit in the concept of passion? And I don't mean physical, sexual passion or intimacy that way. I mean passion for something. Right. So walking that fine line between lack of attachment and passion for, um, how do you get things done? Yeah, but you're not saying, I, when I say non-attachment, I don't mean that you're sitting in a room just letting everything come No, I understand you. that. Yeah. I'm just saying, right. you know, there's people like, and that's when we talked about the, your, the Jewish faith, when I see, when I see very passionate people uh, that do charity work, you know what I mean? And you might meet someone and they are the, and this is non-Jews and Jews alike, someone who is participating in a charity of some sort. Very passionate about it. When you meet that, the reputation of this person is, oh my God, she's fantastic. But she, once she gets you, you, she will not let you go unless you make a donation to blah, blah, blah. So, but there's something to be said about that passion. There's something to be said about my oldest sister who lived for my mother and took care of her, made sure she was always had nice clothes, always had great lotion on her body, showered every day, cleaned every day. You know what I mean? There is some people whose passion serves them and they get things done. So my thought is my non-attachment, my ability to say, trying to discern how do I become the passionate person who does good works and how do I remain the non-attached person who doesn't get affected by everything around me and is able to stay spiritual and do good works. You know what I'm talking oh, about? Oh, I totally understand because so what you're saying that to me. I, I get it. And there's something that is non-attachment, also the awareness of attachment. So the awareness of my non-attachment is my non-attachment. My to be aware of to be aware of not attaching. So I'm to be aware of not engaging attachment, engaging in that a shame spiral or engaging in an anger episode, you know, to say, I'm going to engage in an anger episode and then I'm going to surrender it. Do you know what I mean? It's the idea of I'm going to be aware of what it is that I engage in. 
So in other words, let's say you have a project, some charity or some good works that you want to do, mm -hmm. and it's going to take a lot of work. Mm -hmm. What you're saying is you can participate in that, or what I'm garnishing from what you're saying is we can participate in that wholeheartedly and then along the way practice the non-attachment with stuff that gets in the way. Like if this person doesn't want to participate, that's fine, but I'll find another person to participate. So you can have, you can, both can live in the same. Clearly, because body. what you're doing is you are, I think what gets me with certain people, what the, <laughs> who gets me with certain people? I think what, what, it's the mindlessness that they don't understand that they can unattach. They can be unattached. They don't have, they don't know they have the choice. Exactly. Right. And if, and 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 so it's like you made me get angry. It's like no, I didn't. You had a choice of being angry. But the thing is, if you don't have a spirit life, you don't have the faith to know that you don't have to engage. Absolutely. And and once you define it, it exists. And to to let people know the difference between a, re, a religion, a, a religious practice and a spiritual practice, and very often they'll be one and the same, the religious practice will include a spiritual practice, to know that a sp the spiritual practice is different than the religious practice. Because the religion is the, is the whistles and bells, and the spiritual practice is more of an existential feeling of, I am here right now with the feelings that I have right now, and I own those feelings, and I'm in charge of those feelings. Right? Yes. I mean, not right. I'm saying, does that make sense? No, no, no. It makes sense. But also, if you get down to the basics, if it's just always really about love all the time, it's just how do you get to the love from wherever you're at, emotionally. So if you, can, you might not be able to get to the love if you're engaged in particular feelings concerning someone. Oh man, right? You can't get to the love until you detach or unengage and say, this is where they're at right now. I'm here right now and I can still love them. I don't have to love their behavior. You know, there's a lot of freaking self-talk that goes on and it's hard to, you know, I don't know. I've been doing it for a long time. So I kind of, it comes to me more naturally, not always loving people, but knowing that there's tools at my disposal that I can tap into. Right. That's what I know. I know I have a lot of tools at my disposal. And if I choose to tap into them, if I can create the space, I can tap in and I'll have a different experience. Great. That's all I know in terms of my, my being on this planet experience. I'm going to stop there. That was great. We'll end there. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the ADD Comedy Podcast. For Dave Rosowski, I'm Ian Foley. If you'd like to see one of Dave's improv shows or one of my stand-up shows, you can get that information at addcomedy.com. If you want to take a class with Dave, that information is located on his website at davidrosowski.com. You can also follow Dave on Twitter at drosowski. Today's episode was sponsored by Troubadour, a restaurant movie. A new movie by Group Mind Films, portraying an accurate, sometimes funny, and sometimes cringe-inducing glimpse at restaurant life. Troubadour. A restaurant movie. Available to watch in its entirety online for only $5 at groupmindfilms.com.